Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Ahmad Gomis and I am your host. Today we have Marshall Kambari, Director of Structured Finance at Metris Energy. Metris Energy develops and finances sustainable energy projects at commercial, industrial, and institutional facilities. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ahmad. To start off, can you give a bit of background on yourself and your work at Metris Energy? Absolutely. So my professional background has really been sharpening, structuring private and public transaction across the capital structure globally, although mostly focused in the U.S. My career has had a laser focus on debt instruments. So think about bank loan, term credit, project finance, some construction loan, and most recently, prior to Metris, um, private placement bond. You know, I have worked at large institutions ranging from commercial banks. You think about your big four here in the U.S., large bulge bracket investment banks, and asset manager, although mostly on the insurance side of the house. As you stated, you know, Metris is involved in the procurement, development, installation and operation, and also sometimes maintenance of like medium and large scale sustainable energy projects across the U.S., what we really do is try to bundle efficiency and clean energy measures into one simplified contract. And we try to tailor each of our projects to provide a turnkey solution to a specific client. And we do that with uh, zero upfront capital um, from the client. And we try to set up a pay for performance contract. So essentially what we guarantee is that our project is going to generate some type of savings to the customer. And we would only get paid if that not only that saving is generated, but via a percentage of the saving generated. You know, we have found that energy efficiency upgrade represent the most cost effective way to decarbonize, especially in this environment. And not relying on government incentives sometimes does help, although, you know, we'll be happy to combine them into our structure. Our metrics is also a signatory of the United Nations Principle of Responsible Investment, and that aligns very well with our main mission. You touched on this a little bit when you talked about Metris Energy, but I wonder if you could expand on this. How are you seeing new sustainable energy being financed? And you also talked a little bit about leveraging government, and we know that there's a lot of money coming to local state governments from federal agencies like the EPA. So I'm wondering, what do you see also as an opportunity that, let's say, a local government was interested in financing or creating the environment for more sustainable energy projects to be financed? What would be sort of the way that they could seed that money that would help companies like Metris Energy finance new sustainable energy projects. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. So in my world, what we're seeing um, and the way we try to finance our project is that the conventional approach is what we've found we've had a lot of success with. So think about conventional commercial banks and that you typically do your work in capital, term credit to middle market or large corporation. We are seeing that they've now have growing consideration for climate-related project. And although even if it's a fund that is intertwined with their main way of deploying capital or is a subset of the main way, we try to partner with commercial banks because if they understand the project and have a really good sense of what the risk is, we usually get the most competitive type of financing from that perspective. But I'm also seeing a lot of green bonds um, being issued. You know, they're often called green loans as well. And I think that's a big push 
to kind of expand the the pool of capital that is really really focused on sustainability. Um, you also have you know green asset back securitization, and what that really helps is that in our space, because project finance is sometimes the main driver of financing a specific project, they can be seen as illiquid. And what that green ABS slash green asset backed securitization can do is really make those transactions a little bit more liquid and a little bit more palatable for certain investors to buy into because it gives you some type of diversification, not only across sector, but also across counterparty. So you don't have this concentrated risk to one single client. So what I can see with, and you know, maybe we'll talk in depth in this, what certain institutions can do is really talk to their main capital provider and see what kind of works best for them. I've seen a lot of success on like sustainability length bonds. So it's not a total green bond where you're pretty much kind of just forced to be in a specific space. But what that really does is that the loan are used by corporate or sovereign entities or county and they raise capital at a lower cost. But in doing so, they also commit to achieve some predefined key performance indicator on sustainability. And that could be, you know, for a bottler, for example, it could be like the water waste that, you know, you used to, if it's been kind of like set up, you used to have versus what you've been emitting after, you know, you've raised those type of capital. And I also see the private sector becoming a little bit more prevalent in that space. You know, you think about funds like ESG specific funds being set up, venture capital is now in that space. You know, although the limitation for venture capital is that they're looking for smaller companies, smaller scale technology that they can invest in, maybe generate some type of 10x return from a commercialization perspective. is very difficult in that particular area because when you think about infrastructure, you think about sustainability, you think about climate finance, it's very large scale. The way we're going to make an impact is through massive capital deployment and, you know, the standard private equity approach where you spend a little bit of money and then you lever it up and then you try to just flip it is not always conducive to work very well in that space. So I, I think that's the world that I operated in and I see a lot of success in the traditional conventional. And that doesn't mean that there are any other factors. You've got companies like Hannon Armstrong, which is the first like climate positive public company who just only does climate positive project. And their focus is really on like government institution. I think they've done very well in that space. So that's very encouraging to see as well. So it sounds as if, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you were an entity like a governmental organization where you want to see more sustainable projects, it makes sense for you to leverage those resources that you do have to, one, understand a holistic approach as to, let's say you have, what is your end goal? If your end goal is a science-based target goal, if it's a net zero goal or, or anything like that, and then identify the ways in which you can work with the private sector to say, to create specific standards or policies or metrics of achievement that will enable that regardless of maybe the specific project, but we'll say, for instance, instead of maybe doing a wind farm, you may have power plants and other, and other activities that you say, 
have to include X amount of renewable energy programs or policies and things of that nature that will help you as the local government or the state government to achieve your specific uh, net zero goals, if that's the case, and then allow the private sector to use those funds to be more innovative and creative in how they meet that. Would that be a good estimation of what that could look like? No, I, I think so. I think so, Matt. I think it's a little bit nuanced because ultimately you want to move away from anything that is, you know, non-renewable and fossil fuel. But, you know, what we're trying, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. So being able to be additive versus, you know, just having a non-prospective approach can be uh, can be uh, difficult to, to ascertain. So I think that is a good summation, but, you know, with the caveat that, the end goal really should be to just move away from anything that is non-renewable, right? But is, if, it, if it can happen today, what are some type of measures that we can take? You know, you think about large utility companies. When I was doing private placement bond, one of the precursors that, you know, we would have before we would provide any type of financing to them is that they had to have a plan to decarbonize over a certain number of years and we had to like hold them to it. And there are certain milestones that they needed to meet and then come back to the table if that didn't happen and then we can rethink our relationship. So yeah, so implementing those guardrail are very much the rigor and very much important, but you know, ensuring that we are, we have this holistic approach, knowing that we just need to move away from anything that's just non-renewable and just pollute is always important to keep in the back of the head. That's great. And when you think about traditional finance and traditional infrastructure specifically, and given the current climate that we're in, where people are debating if we're in a recession, if we're headed to a recession, with inflation happening as highly as it is in the U.S. and across the globe, given this sort of macro understanding of, of where things are, do you find it or have you... Do you think it was easier or harder for sustainable energy projects to be financed now in comparison to traditional infrastructure programs? Or are there any key differences that make one more attractive than the other, given sort of the macroeconomic environment we're, we're in currently? I think that's a great question. Now, what I would say that it is, it's evolving. You know, you know what is evident is that it is becoming much easier to have conversation about sustainable energy project, you know, because again, this top of mind, it is something that is absolutely needed. But the reality is that the follow through is only sometimes at a favorable rate. So, you know, you think about a track record and I've been in this space for a minute now, but not as long as, you know, most of my counterpart. But we have subsidized non-sustainable energy production, like fossil fuel industries for decades. And in some areas of the world, it is still going on. So to allow for level playing field and for sustainable energy transition to happen as effectively and as smoothly as we would want it to be. So we need clear and transparent long-term policy that we know so that we know what the rules of the game are in order to compete, right? So we need to not only compete our way out of the maze, but it's also very important for us to know what is the regulation that we need to adhere to as opposed to a traditional project when we come into play. So in order to make that happen, we still the fight to implement the right solution needs to just have 
very, very good guidance. And at this stage, we just don't have it. I think you alluded to that a little earlier in our conversation, but a milestone such as like MD Inflation Reduction Act, that certainly helps, you know, like over the next year or so deploying or having access to what, $370 billion in energy security and climate change program, that will do a really, really good job addressing some of our financing shortfall that we have been experiencing and maybe extend some of the benefit that some of the clean energy project currently enjoy. But as you begin to dig a little deeper into the direction that we've been given, so we're running into a little bit of like a hurdle. And that makes it very difficult for some of the smaller players in the space to kind of take advantage of these benefits that are being provided. But one thing I want to make sure and I want to add is that as much as the government is doing its part, especially the most recent one, and trying to kind of level out the playing field for all the players, it's the private investors that are going to be the one making the big difference and to help significantly move the needles. So to wrap it up and kind of just address your question, I, I would say it depends. Some people are in a space where they flourish. One doesn't make it easier than harder. It's much easier to have the conversation and we've had the conversation. I think sometimes the follow through is just lacking because people are either still getting up to speed with it or really, really just stuck in the old ways. And like, I understand this. I've I've done this for years and years. I know my risk. I've lived through a certain level of cycles and I want to stick to it. So we just need to change the conversation and change the narrative around that in order to level out the playing field. So one is not easier, but ultimately, hopefully, finding sustainable energy capital to put to work will be much easier down the road. And speaking of changing the narrative, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that oftentimes, um, and even in this conversation, we've talked about sustainable finance, sustainable energy, infrastructure, much more from a United States, and you could even argue a Western European assumption. And we know that in the US and Western Europe, the demand for energy is fairly satisfied. And the question really is, how do you improve the mix of energy that's being used by the economy? But in developing economies, such as in regions like Africa and Latin America, there's a need for both energy and a need for renewable energy. What do you see as potential solutions to meet these twin needs for developing economies when we're thinking about sustainable energy and financing thereof? No, I think think you're correct. A lot of it from a need perspective and what needs to happen, a lot of it has to do, I think a lot of the pushback from the developing nations slash countries really has to do with a sense of unfairness. And now I think about it from the grand scheme of thing, there's been some push on certain African countries to really, really start adopting and moving towards a cleaner way of sourcing their energy. And the unfairness there may come to a, a point where the Western world has gone through the industrial revolution, right? So it seems a little bit unfair that when we are on our way there, that we get this additional wrench put in our will and we have to just rethink and readapt when we're not even quite there. So one of the things that can help push and address these twin needs, as you referred to earlier, is really creating a market for investment. You know, I do believe that the private sector is really the one that would move the needle as much as governments are needed in order to set up regulation, in order to maybe subsidize some things and provide some type of benefit and just clear the path for 
for a um, private investor to come in. But creating a market for investment is just not going to happen overnight. So, you know, one of the key things that may need to happen is promoting access to energy, right? I think about a continent like Africa where for the last account and hoping to be up to date to it, more than half or almost half of the people on the continent have no access to electricity in their home, right? So efforts to achieve universal access to like affordable and reliable, and in this case, maybe sustainable electricity must really, really be at the forefront of the energy transition strategy if there's got to be one in place, right? You have to effectively fight poverty and enable these new economic opportunities and promote equality at the same time. I spent a little bit of time in Nairobi and one of the things I did find fascinating is how pervasive access to like solar electricity was very prevalent. And kind of digging a little deeper into it is trying to understand why. And it wasn't because, you know, half of the rural population say really, really need electricity because the sun goes down at 5.30 and I'm dark until 6 a.m. the next night. No, it's based on a platform called M-Pesa that, you know, a, a startup put together. And that was a blockchain way to kind of move money easily. And this solar company was able to kind of tack on their product to M-Pesa in order to not only get good transparency into payments, but also allow someone that leaves you know, hundreds of miles away from the city to have access to a solar equipment that gives them light at night when they come back from their activities. And these are very, very great synergies, but they're not always replicable everywhere. So promoting the access to energy needs to be top of the mind. From a second point, I think being able to kind of de-risk and promote the private sector investment would play a tremendous role in that space. You know, the investment, as I stated earlier, stated earlier, required to like meet these needs and the growing demand for renewable energy are far greater than what the public sources and public sector can offer. So by building like stable, predictable, and enable certain frameworks that I kind of identify, okay, if I come into this space, this is what I should expect. This is what I need to adhere to. These are the things that I need to to do in order to make sure that my capital is being invested properly. And then I'm able to also recoup it. And there's not going to be a regime change that is going to kind of change the profile of the investment I thought I was coming into is going to be paramount. And that just tacks along into that need. And lastly, I think about infrastructure. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the unfairness that certain countries may feel by being asked to shift from their current sources of energy access to a more renewable front. But you also think about the grid, the grids that are in these places, they're a little bit dated and it's very difficult. Even if you have a farmland, you know, you've got countries that just have the most access to sunlight on the continent, you know, whether it's in Argentina or, you know, some remote place in, in Kenya. But in order to transfer that energy into the grid, it's just an uphill battle. There is just certain infrastructure that needs to be in play. And it, it all comes down to like, okay, from a public sector front, what needs to happen to help people really realize that this is the way of the future and these are the investments that we need to push out in order to really better our approach to using energy. So I think these are three good strategies. Obviously, they're not 
you know, not only are they not mutually exclusive, but they're also not exhaustive. There's a myriad of other things that needs to happen. But I think if we get these three right, we are in a good path to being to equalizing not only the access to energy to all, but also promoting a more sustainable form of consumption. And that's great. Quick question. So in the next 10 years, you know, understanding, you know, what the current status quo is when you think about energy finance, what do you foresee happening in this field of sustainable energy finance? Do you see there being more standardization, wider acceptance, or do you think that like just technology will come into place that will help to alleviate some of the angst that maybe other companies currently are facing when it comes to financing energy projects, both in the U.S. and other places? Oh, <laughs> you're asking me to play an oracle here, huh? <laughs> you know, maybe I'll, I'll take it a step back and just be a little bit more general. I think, you know, from being in this space for a little while, you know, I one of the big conversations is that it's very difficult in today's world to have an investment conversation around anything without ESG being at the forefront. You know, I think a few years back, I'll say 10 years ago, it was good to have. And, you know, some investors may come in and say, hey, I really, really want a more ESG friendly investment. And then they're like, but I don't want to give up any type of return at all. So it was always difficult to kind of reconcile both. But when I think about the future, the next 10 years, I think in that particular space, one of the things that is going to really drive some of the changes is really the new technology. There is a growing interest in the next generation of clean technology, right? There's activities eating up left and right. And the renewable energy industries, they're considering like investing in them. So that can provide some confidence around the sustainability aspect of it. But also, how do we take on these new technology and really integrate that into the main grid? For like an industry that's been largely focused um, from an energy, from a renewable side to like solar and wind, like private investment and pilot combined, when you take into that, these new technology, I think, can provide like zero carbon and long-term seasonable electricity storage and like really, really redefine how we think about renewable energy going forward. So really the focus on that should be prime. And then I think the second thing is, you know, thinking about that is also the supply chain strategy, the supply chain strategies are in place. I think they will continue to evolve. You know, one of the things that is great and all is like when you look at the technology that we're using right now for some of our project, and I'll just single out the solar front, these are not considered new technologies anymore, right? It's been proven, it's been tested. We have a really good understanding of how they perform. And, you know, when you look at it and you say, well, this is great for the E part of the ESG. So you think about the supply chain, you've got parts being created across the world, being assembled here, being shipped here. You think about this whole ecosystem. Then you have this end product that is installed and is really, really doing a good job helping combat the climate crisis that we're facing. And then you think about the parts that have gone into building this very e-friendly product. And you think about the, the labor that went into it. Like, how do you reconcile that if you have, I would say, dubious labor 
creating your part, right? So this there's going to be a very, very critical need for like trustability and transparency when it comes to the supply chain. And I think this is something that the stakeholders should really pay good attention to. And then I think a third thing, and it goes hand in hand because I think it's a circular thing, is really how do we think about sustainable growth? Yes, we want the space, we want the industry to grow and we are in the efficiency space and we are in the renewable space, it's all good. But how do you grow sustainably? You've got the first set of big, big renewable project reaching their end of life management. Um, Some of those equipments are coming offline and then you've got the new one going in. And so how do you think through that? What do you do with the old one? Are they biodegradable? And a lot of them truly aren't at this time. So, you know, industry stakeholder, regulator and policymaker have really started to kind of explore solution to not only maybe extend end of life in order to prolong what that could do, but also increase performance and the ability to reuse some of those products and material in order to build new. So the case for really building like a circular economy for whether it's battery storage or like having a deeper collaboration among industry and between businesses and policymakers to really, really gain this ability to be a little bit more sustainable through and all is going to be paramount. And then you think about maybe creating a secondary market for like repurposed electric vehicle, for example, right? I remember reading a few uh, weeks ago that EV batteries are like usable ones. And I thought, what a missed opportunity. So to to be able to really think about it from a sustainable front, because we are going to have to manage that end of life product at the end. So I think these are the three keys that I see as going to be big headaches that we should pay attention to. So really focusing on a new technology and see how we can integrate that into the main grid, thinking about the supply chain strategy, ensuring that we're not just focusing on the end product, but the entirety of what goes into the end product, and then thinking about how we grow sustainably once we have a space and a platform that is really, really efficient and productive. Well, thank you so much, Marshall, for being on the ESG Matters podcast. I think I know myself and I'm sure the listeners found this extremely interesting and informative. So again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was a great pleasure to speak with you. 